Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I'm talking with Liv Morano, a speech and language pathologist at our favorite place, the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation, also known as the DSRF. Welcome, Liv. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm so glad you could join us today. Uh, Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you love about the DSRF? For sure. Um, So yeah, my name is Liv. I've been at the DSRF four years uh, this month, which has absolutely flown by. Um, I'm originally from a small town in Ontario uh, called Chatham, um, and I grew up with siblings with developmental disabilities. Um, I also have a learning disability, so I've always kind of knew I wanted to, um, yeah, work with students with disabilities and kind of gravitated towards that. Um, I came out to BC for grad school originally. Um, but like most Ontario people, uh, fell in love with this place <laughs> and have been out ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the DSRF is yeah a magical place. It's also one of my favorite places. Um, I think my favorite thing about that place is um, the people, mm-hmm. uh, not only my colleagues, but the families I get to work with. Um, I worked in a long time when I first started in public health. And I think coming to the DSRF, one of my favorite things about it is um, that you get to follow families for such a long time, which I think is really unique mm-hmm. um, to, yeah, indefinite amounts of time. Like I've had some students since I started and some of my colleagues have had students, you know, over a decade. So um, wow. the fact that, yeah, I think that's so cool and unique um, just to be, you know, a part of their team and their journey for so long. And uh, yeah, cool to see people grow. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's really cool. And you feel very like connected with, yeah, you, the families you work with, as I'm sure that, yeah, you felt too, Mary. Oh, 100%. Yes, totally. Yeah. So yeah, because, and Amanda, who's our current speech uh, path, she's also from Ontario, as I'm sure you yeah. know. <laughs> And we'll there's a lot of her, us. <laughs> we'll have to get her on too. <laughs> and yeah, we've had Hannah and for gosh rot for a number of years now so yes yeah so it's amazing and you know and that's why one of the reasons why we love it there is you know everyone knows our kids and yeah yeah so which makes it so fantastic so like i kind of wanted to talk today a little bit about like the dual diagnosis and you know communication because obviously it's i think a bit more challenging when you have the autism diagnosis along with down syndrome and Mm -hmm. you know you're a speech path so i thought you'd be great but first i wanted to start off like i hear this a lot that people say their child is non-verbal what does non-verbal actually mean is it meaning like no language at all like no or no functional language like what does that truly mean? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, traditionally, when I was, you know, first in grad school, when I first started working, uh, the term nonverbal had been a clinical term that's been around like a really long time uh, to mean someone that couldn't use their speech to communicate. So um, they would use other ways of communicating. For example, um, they could use, you know, eye gaze, so they might look at something they want, they could gesture towards something, using signs, even vocalizations, you know, if they're really excited, or if they're scared, they could still use their voice, but they don't have uh, speech in order to 
you know, verbalize those kind of um, words and make phrases and sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, or they could use other aids like, um, you know, communication boards or, um, you know, iPads with speech generating devices, um, meaning that, you know, if I press something on this device, it speaks out. Mm-hmm. Um, now as SLPs, this is a very new thing. We're actually moving away from that term um, and okay. using the term non-speaking. Have you ever okay. like heard that before? Or it's really new. <laughs> like you've no. been a lot of speech paths are making the transition. Like, um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's very recent. Um, so yeah, non-speaking um, is a term we're trying to use to capture, um, yeah, those that don't use speech to communicate because mm-hmm. to your question about like, what does it mean to be nonverbal? Um, it was kind of this ambiguous term which if you kind of break it down, nonverbal means without words, which mm-hmm. isn't always the case for people who are nonverbal, quote unquote, um, because they do, you know, have other ways of communicating words to us, right? You know, whether that be signs or um, does Ainsley use any sort of communication mm-hmm. aids to help her? Yes, we use touch chat. And awesome. I have to admit, I have been rather bad at using it at home and get and myself getting familiar with it but we had like prior to her wrap-up IEP and I think Hannah was in the meeting we several months ago where we talked about that so we started to make it more of a focus because she has a new EA this year and I don't think she's really familiar with the touch mm-hmm. chat she uses a lot of pecs uh which awesome. Ainsley loves and she's really good at but like just last week, her teacher said to me, Ainsley is really navigating the touch chat really well. And, and I knew that she could always use it well, because I would see her in the speech, her speech sessions oh, using it. Awesome. And, you know, where she knows where to find things really quickly in there, like much more than I can, but I'm trying <laughs> to get better at, you know, trying to use it more at home. Yeah. And, you know, we can talk a bit more about that after, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, like Ainsley and like and today we just had a speech session and like she's starting to string sentences together using words Amazing. that I've never heard her say. Right. It's like so exciting. Like I've been waiting nine years for this. So oh, yeah. So that's it's, awesome. It's pretty exciting for me because you know, I've been working so hard with her speech because I feel like that's her key to her life right her gateway to life if she can communicate like people in our world they know about like the touch chat and packs but outside of our little community no and people just think that's just different so uh if she can communicate her wants and needs which has always been my goal then awesome that's huge Yeah, yeah yeah and that's awesome that she yeah, for that reason, right? Like she's able to string together words and yeah, uses all these fantastic, you know, other ways to communicate her message. So yeah, the the word non-speaking has kind of come up recently, not only by clinicians, but also um, like disability self-advocates to kind of say like, look, um, you know, we need to capture the wide range of people that communicate in different ways. So mm-hmm. kind of using the term 
yeah, non-speaking, just kind of, or minimally speaking, um, better captures that range rather than nonverbal that might dismiss that this person, you know, has words or just communicates a different way. So um, yeah, it's a very new term. Like a lot of us are still kind of getting in the habit of using it more. Um, yeah, and especially talking with their families. So yeah, that's a really good question. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I love yeah, that. Forward. Because I think, yes, that does specify more clearly mm-hmm. what it means. It doesn't mean like because someone can't actually articulate words that they can't communicate. So yes. I think it, it, I think it's very helpful. So I'm definitely going to start trying to use that more, that term more and encourage others in all the different forums I'm on to, to start using that. So that, that's awesome. awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's wonderful. Yeah. So you know, I hear like, I'm kind of wondering is being non-speaking, would you say it's more common in our kiddos with a dual diagnosis of autism and Down syndrome as opposed to just Down syndrome? Yeah, really good question. In general, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last time I checked, I think it's estimated that a quarter to 30%, so 25 to 30% of um, autistic people are non-speaking. So um, there is a large yeah, majority. Um, and we know people with Down syndrome, ha- their speech skills are usually slower to develop. Um, so yeah, with the added piece of autism, they are more likely to be non-speaking. Um, and that is sometimes something that we might yeah consider or look for. Um, but just because they aren't non-speaking doesn't necessarily mean they have autism as well. So it's kind of, we do our detective skills of, yeah, looking for um, other sorts of characteristics present, but it can be one indicator for sure. So when you said 25 to 30% of people with autism are non-speaking, would that be about the same? Do you know as kiddos with this dual diagnosis? That's a really good question. It definitely, I think, would be higher. Um, I actually don't know a percentage on that. I don't know if there's been any, like, study kind of capturing that. Um, Mm -hmm. But that is a really good question that, yeah, I should look into. Um, I do think, yeah, because that stat is just for autistic population period, not capturing, yeah, like other folks um, with Down syndrome. So, um, yeah. And if there isn't a study out there, we should do one because it is, yeah, but it is higher. um, Yeah, because we do know that um, autism is more common in folks with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, they're like 15 to 20 more um, times uh, common in that population versus a typical population, which is about like 1.7%, if I'm right. So yeah, a large majority of individuals with Down syndrome will meet the criteria for autism, but of course other things need to be present. Um, Usually when someone is non-speaking, if they have just Down syndrome, they'll use other modes of communicating like gestures, um, eye contact. um, Yeah, they kind of use signs more often. They use, it's coupled with other attempts to be understood where sometimes Um, our folks with dual diagnosis, because they have differences in their social communication, um, they might not use the same gestures or signs to communicate. So I Mm -hmm. hear a lot from uh, parents and caregivers that 
um, it can be really frustrating to mm -hmm. kind of read their body language and interpret what is going on because um, those same kind of clues we get from social communication aren't always there um, or aren't as, um, you know, as concrete or easy to read. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So we all know that speech is generally delayed in our kiddos with Down syndrome, but are you able to talk a little bit about some of the challenges or obstacles our kids with the dual diagnosis may have when it comes to speech? That's a really good question. Um, in general, you know, speech develops at a slower rate, um, but I do find there are sometimes, yeah, more challenges or obstacles for kiddos with dual diagnosis, just thinking about the path to get there. Mm -hmm. um, one of the main differences, I think, in our autistic students is they have differences in their joint attention. Mm -hmm. So this can be kind of difficult because it's the foundation for a lot of learning. Um, and by joint attention, I mean, you know, focusing on something else and someone else at the same time, mm -hmm. um, which is way, how we learn, right? We have to kind of watch other people, um, watch them talk about something or do something in order for us to kind of learn about it, copy it. Um, so when we kind of think about, yeah, learning, you know, uh, words, uh, what they mean, uh, learning how to express them, and then speech, um, at the very bottom, it's that like joint attention. I need to be able to engage with someone and to attend, which is often a difference for um, individuals who have a dual diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have to kind of focus on those skills at the very foundation okay, um, in order to kind of, yeah, uh, help them with their understanding of language, their expression, and then finally, okay, you know, we have good attention, we can work on our speech skills. So I think that's probably one of the main differences I find is we work on that kind of, yeah, you know, joint attention um, and turn taking before, mm -hmm. as sometimes those are kind of inherent skills um, of our other learners with just Down syndrome, we kind of have to build those in our autistic learners, um, which could look different. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the main things. Um, yeah, one of my students I'm thinking about right now, like he, yeah, he's a teen and we, we've worked on speech a little bit, but I always found his attention a bit, um, yeah, it was different. It was shorter. He didn't take as many turns. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, we're kind of at the point right now where like we're working on speech, like he's ready for it. He's, he's learned, we have his system set up. He's learned so many words that, you know, the past few years now we're working on speech and it's been awesome to see him. Like he's mm -hmm. trying to imitate, he's kind of made that connection. Like, oh, like, you know, I can say my favorite things and he's trying. So yeah, the path is different, you know, for some of these students for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting about like the joint attention, because I remember like Ainsley didn't get like, she's nine now, but she didn't get her autism diagnosis till five and a half. I mean, we were waitlisted mm. for an entire year, but I remember we went to see a friend of mine from high school, uh, Dr. Karen Bopp, who I, I had on early in the first season. Uh, and she said her joint attention was actually pretty good and yeah. because she was looking for it and, you know, she wasn't really sure, like she was kind of on the fence if she really had autism. Like, so, you know, and I could see how that can be challenging, but those are good points, like turn taking, because we still work on that turn taking, she's pretty, pretty good, but, and the joint attention. So that that's, awesome. those are good things to note. And 
you know, I'm curious, like Ainsley knows people's names and she's starting to say more like, hi, Dennis, or the person's name, like, hi, hi. she doesn't say hi, mama. I think she's only said that once without prompting, but you know, and I've been working really hard with her that when she comes, you know, to me asking for something, it's usually to unlock her iPad (laughs) and, you know, and I'm trying to get her to say, you know, mama, I want, but it seems challenging for her to say that. Is that because having autism and that is like a social initiative, like you're inviting someone kind of into your social world because when we're out like the last couple of months she's saying hi to just random people in the store mostly they say hi back thankfully but it's awesome yeah I'm like yeah that's awesome Ainsley <laughs> like you're saying hi to everyone and and people are really good they go hi you know they're really good the saying hi back but is that what the challenge is with for her like to say you know mm. to ask me by name or to or asking Dennis by name or do you know yeah, it could be, it could be a lot of different things. Like mm-hmm. I often hear from parents like, you know, yeah, my child has words, but they just don't use them all the time. Or I know they can say this, but like, why don't they do that? Um, or they do it some of the times, but not always. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of factors that could be at play. Um, you know, like, for example, um, I see a student uh, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon. And I find like, depending on their day, even like, did they get enough sleep? Or, um, you know, if they come see me in the afternoon, they're way more tired. It's way, you know, harder for them to string together words to make sentences. We often have to use more supports. Um, It could be thinking about environmental factors. So even expectations around yeah, not only time of day, but are there, you know, distractions or is this, you know, um, an optimal learning environment? Um, Sometimes, yeah, motivation. So you talked a little bit about like, yeah, is it kind of inviting her in a social world? world? Like, is she, she, yeah, socially motivated to say people's names or, you know, is, is that something, is is she more motivated in using language for other purposes? Um, I think, yeah, there could be um, other things that we need to think about, like, um, is it an emerging skill for them? So sometimes I see that um, our students need just more practice with these skills before we expect them to use it independently or they need more support with it. So sometimes things like using visual supports um, or using, you know, programming it on her iPad um, can be another way for her to kind of learn that script or that um, those words uh, okay. before we kind of see her use it verbally mm-hmm. um, without any support. So sometimes there's kind of steps in between we need to think about. Okay. Um, and generalization is really difficult too for our guys. So even though, you know, I can do it in maybe speech therapy in this context, you know, another goal could be, okay, now we're going to do it at home um, or at school. Um, yeah, getting lots and lots of practice into I think that also helps our students is repetition. So is everyone, you know, modeling this for Ainsley so she can learn it or is it just mom, you know? Um, so also getting the team on board about like, okay, yeah, like, you know, the more times that Ainsley sees it, I think the more times that she's likely to, yeah, learn it. And then when she's ready, express it herself. Okay. Um, so it's, it's a big question, but like, 
in general, like I think, yeah, speech takes a lot of practice. And I think when speech does come, you know, easily to some people, it's hard to think about like all the steps involved when you do mm-hmm. have a communication, um, yeah, difficulty. Um, but the most important thing I always kind of tell families is like a student's always going to do like the best they can in that moment. Um, and so if we can just even recognize what they are doing and, uh, you know, that it's sometimes hard for them and what we can do to help support them get there, that's ultimately the best we can do, you know, as their, their communication partner in that instance. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes total sense. You know, that she needs to have more practice than it just being with me, of course, like <laughs> that sounds, it's so obvious, but it just didn't really. Oh, totally. Like, right. Me, right? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Cause I, cause I thought it would, it's also would help her later, like just for asking for things, you know, totally. you know, yeah. instead of just going up to somebody, but like, cause she knows people's names. Like she knows, awesome. like she, she knows her teacher's name. She know, and a lot of the different EAs, you know, because, you know, they, they cover each other for breaks. So there's different ones that are um, with her. And then she knows all the staff at the daycare. I don't even know their names. And then, <laughs> one day on her touch chat like she had all the pictures of the aides and i'm because i i only know the people by like seeing them i don't know their names so i'm pointing <laughs> to them asking her who they were and she was telling me you amazing know, yes, which was oh, awesome that's yeah. a great like yeah way for her to even teach you like that's yeah. awesome yeah so that was awesome oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know and ainsley really loves music and often sings or hums her favorite song happy birthday and i've read that others who have kids with the dual diagnosis who they often claim are non-speaking or you know they were using the term Mm non-verbal but yet can sing entire songs do you know why this is and someone asked is this like a form of scripting which i had never heard that term before yes that's such a good question Um, I love this question because it kind of gets at one of the strengths and kind of the learning profiles of a lot of our duly diagnosed kiddos, um, which often we don't highlight or parents don't know about. Um, So when I was in school, there was one way of learning language. Um, You would go from, you know, learning one word to two words to three words, kind of in this sequence. And it was yeah, typical language development, you know, how you and I learn language, how a lot of students with Down syndrome learn language just at a slower rate. Um, and these are called, usually I call them my word kiddos, um, but the technical term is like analytical language learner, which they learn, yeah, in that sequence. <laughs> the second way of learning language though, and this is like, this is a new topic in kind of getting more and more um, traction in speech language Um, therapy is gestalt language learners. So these are often, yeah, autistic kiddos, um, and they learn language in chunks. So they often will, yeah, take a script, you know, that they learn from a TV show or a Mm -hmm. song or um, a phrase, you know, um, that you, you know, when you give direction that they might repeat. Um, And for example, like I can give an example of one of my students, 
said old McDonald has a farm often in our sessions. <laughs> and I took it very literally. I'm like, oh, you want to sing? Great. We'll sing. And then, you know, she looks at me with disgust. She's like, no, like, that's not what I want. I'm offering her a farm. I'm like, do you want to play farm? Like what's going on? Um, and we kind of did detective work. And what I realized was old McDonald was the first activity we had ever done together. So that mm -hmm. was kind of her way of just saying like, let's play, or, uh -huh. you know, I want toys. Mm -hmm. um, so these kind of scripts of language can be seem sometimes out of context, but when you do the detective work, they actually, they are communication. And we have to sometimes do the detective work of figuring out, okay, what does the student mean by the script? Mm -hmm. um, and they're not always phrases either, or like long chunks. Um, I have another student who uses the word jacket. Um, whenever she comes in my, my office, she goes, jacket, <laughs> whether she has a jacket or not, um, because the first time we met, she had a jacket on and we took it off um, and she learned the word jacket. So that's her way of, you know, saying like, I'm here or hi, Lib, but that's the, the script she used. Um, so these kiddos, um, yeah, just adult language learners, or I call them like my rhythm kids. They learn language not by the individual words, but by the rhythm of how we say it in that context. And then it's kind of up to us to like, yeah, validate what it means um, and then figure out, yeah, what are you trying to communicate here and teaching them those words for that. So um, yeah, both are valid ways of communicating. Um, we, yeah, we just have to kind of figure out, um, yeah, what it means and, and help them learn along the way. But um, I do find that, yeah, learning songs and using singing is like a great tool for our kiddos to learn language. Mm -hmm. Because this one, the same lady, she said that her, her daughter, I guess they always sung like when she had like a little boo-boo or something, they had a little boo-boo song. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and then she one day said, finger hurt, boo-boo bandage. Like, so she took like the song yes. to, you know, and to like literally and yes. told them that, or told her mom that, you know, I've hurt my finger or, or whatever it was. So I thought, oh, that's fantastic. Cause like I've done the same with Ainsley. I made up all these really silly potty training songs. Right? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> and so now Ainsley will tell me, so like not singing it, but she'll tell me like, you know, she has to go. So yes. which is great. And uh, yeah, and I've read that many times, like people say their kids will sing verbatim, yeah. like an entire long songs, you know, where their children generally don't have any real verbal language. So, which I found, yeah. thought was really interesting. Cause I know our kids like with Down syndrome tend to be a little bit more on the musical side. Oh yeah. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wondered if that kind of could play into it, you know, helping kids to jump from songs to like actual just language. So yes. that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That affinity for music for sure helps. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, I went to a talk once, I can't remember the doctor, I apologize, but he was saying that for, um, yeah, kind of the autistic brain, the, the predictability and pattern of music as something that they really gravitate towards because it ah, is predictable. Okay. So, and that's what, you know, a strength of theirs is like holding on to predictability routine. And so the fact that, yeah, music is, is 
used as a learning tool really caters to just how, yeah, their brain works and is wired. So um, yeah, using music, I think is great. Oh, that, yeah, that makes total sense. I hadn't really thought of it like that before, Mm -hmm. but yes, that makes total sense that for the predictability and like you said, the rhythm. So that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 Fascinating stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it actually is. And I don't, I mean, I've been in this autism journey for a few years now, but I, I feel like I just know so little, but you know, I'm like always learning. And like you said, now you're, they're coming out with like saying non-speaking, which I think yeah. is important, you know, as opposed to like non-verbal because you just hear that all the time. And like, people are going, well, yes. what does that even mean? Totally. So, yeah. So that's awesome. So when Ainsley was getting assessed for autism, they kept asking like constantly about regression, which at that time I never saw. And I, to be honest, I haven't really ever seen any regression in her. Excuse me. However, I have read that a lot of parents see regression in speech. Mm-hmm. Is this fairly common in our duly diagnosed kiddos? It is. Yeah, it is quite common. Um, I believe it's about 50% of duly diagnosed. Yeah, will have a period of regression at some point. Um, it's not just within speech, but in like other skills too. So for mm-hmm. example, um, one of my students used to gesture, like nod his head for yes and shake his head for no. And that skill has kind of come and gone like throughout his, mm-hmm. his, his development. So it could be, yeah, in other skills as well, but, mm-hmm. um, it is quite common, um, compared to the general population. Um, and I know happens later in duly diagnosed kiddos than just within the autism population. So, uh, with, a kiddo, um, just an autistic, uh, kiddo, he would have a period of regression around, I think the average is like 1.5 years where, yeah, our duly diagnosed, right. Um, our duly diagnosed kiddos, it's usually around five years. So, um, that period of regression, yeah, it's a bit later on. Cause that was one of my questions. What does, when does it typically occur? Cause I know one mom, I think her son, was eight and then just eventually lost all speech and I think that's I think that's when he was diagnosed with autism not 100% sure on that but I think that was one of the key like you know signs that he might have autism and I think now he has no verbal language I from what I understand so which is so heartbreaking if your child was talking and now is not like do they know why that happens we don't sadly yeah there's been so many studies done on yeah regression trying to find some sort of correlation or causation um so far yeah they haven't found it being linked to anything Mm -hmm. uh some studies think that it could be correlated with you know increased risk risk factors of things like epilepsy, um, sleep disturbances, um, you know, autistic people may be more likely to feel overwhelmed or go through like sensory issues that might, um, impede their learning. So Mm -hmm. it could be, there's kind of speculation around, you know, the things that could be affecting it, but, um, yeah, we, we don't know why it occurs. Um, and it's, yeah, it seems, I think it's scary for parents. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a parent, but I, you know, looking at the kids that 
um, I work with and their families, like it can be very disheartening to, yeah, see, mm-hmm. you know, something, I think they go through a lot of grief around, you oh. know, things that they had and then, yeah. yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it's tough. It's tough it, to see. Yeah. I think it would be very devastating. Like you're already dealing with down syndrome. Like when I, you know, when I got Ainsley's autism diagnosis, I was just thinking, oh man, like something else now. And I thought I could handle down syndrome, but now I got to right. handle autism. And I, I do find she's, and I read about this a lot that she's, you know, kids, they're more impacted by their autism than their down syndrome. And, and for me personally, like Ainsley doesn't have a lot of the, I don't know how to like a lot of the typical behaviors that kids with autism have like she transitions right. really well she doesn't have meltdowns uh she's pretty chill i mean we do keep a fairly good routine so i think but that's always been that way like before right. i even knew she had autism which just it's always been that way so i i think that's kind of helped but yeah. yeah and i it just like i think if you had a child who was talking and now nothing it would be really like for me, I, I would be heartbreaking. So I can only yeah. imagine for parents. So, I mean, I know you don't have like a magic ball to <laughs> see the future. I wish, I so wish. <laughs> but like Ainsley's nine, like, do you think we would be past the point where there would be regression? Good question. Um, I think so looking at like what I know about it, um, like we know that the average is five. Mm -hmm. Have I seen it sometimes earlier? Yes. And have I seen it later? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's hard to say. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think all the things that you are doing, like keeping a routine, um, you know, attending therapy, all those kind of things where, you have a team of people that can even look out for signs of early Mm -hmm. regression or that kind of stuff. I think, yeah, like she's set up, you know, in a way that, um, yeah, has been successful to her so far. Um, but yeah, I I wish I, I wish I could tell you, you know, the future and, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's a hard one to answer, but I do think that like, yeah, you know, everything that you are, you are doing is, is benefiting. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I know no one can predict the future. I mean, fingers crossed is what I'm hoping. Yeah. So like kids who have regressed and lost all or a lot of their speech, will they ever recover the speech or is that just Mm -hmm. how it's going to be? That's a good question. Yeah. So they can. Um, Yeah. Just speaking anecdotally, like um, not always, but they can. Um, and sometimes it might take a while. Um, sometimes it's a period. Um, sometimes they don't. Um, and we might need to find other ways um, to, yeah, communicate those things. Um, so communication does meet their needs. Um, but yeah, I, I have seen them come back or have these periods of like, yeah, mm-hmm. on and off. Um, yeah, which it, I think is promising to some extent. Mm-hmm. So like you said, it's good to like, you know, we have a team of therapists. So when you start seeing regression or speech regression, what can we do to help with this? Like, is there a way to kind of halt it or stop it? Or do you have to just sort of wait and see? 
Yeah. I think it's a hard question, but I think the one thing, like I always say when I'm starting to kind of see like a period of regression is, um, ruling out any health factors that could be causing, um, yeah, what we're seeing. So, um, I've seen regression in students when really it's just been, you know, sleep apnea untreated or hearing loss untreated, um, you know, thyroid, you know, um, fluctuation. So I think always ruling out, I think that's why a lot of us do check in about health things with families, which can be super repetitive for, I'm assuming, right? I'm always like, when was your last hearing test? Or when was, you know, we always check in about those things because it does impede, you know, like our mm-hmm. performance. And um, so I think, yeah, always making sure that you're up to date on all the health stuff um, to rule that out. Um, I think, yeah, uh, tending or be connecting to some sort of uh, therapy to help continuing, you know, develop those skills or implement any strategies, um, that could help in the meantime. Um, and I think, yeah, like you've, you've touched on it already, but keeping a routine and really clear expectations, like it sounds, you know, pretty, pretty little, but in the grand scheme of things, um, that can also be an indicator of change because everything else is kept to the same. Um, and our students really do well with predictability, clear expectations, and it just helps their learning. So I think, um, yeah, those kind of things I do find help the most when you're kind of seeing this pattern. Um, yeah. Like this one mom, now I, I have a feeling her daughter is a little bit on the younger side. She didn't, I don't recall she's saying how old her daughter was, but she said her daughter had around 20 words and now nothing mm-hmm. and not even approximations, just vocal stims by doing like raspberries. Is there anything this mama can do to help this? Like you sort of touched a little bit on it, but I mean, she didn't say if the daughter, like, again, how old she was or if she was in, I'm assuming she's in therapy. I don't know, but what can you do? Yeah, really good question. Um, So yeah, like I think it can be really hard kind of seeing like this change when you're like, oh, like, you know, you feel like you've, you've almost like lost a part of them. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel like sometimes like Mm -hmm. as a therapist. Um, I think the biggest thing we can do as hard as it is. And I I know this is a part of grieving that, but is acceptance and like seeing them for who they are and what they're doing right now. Um, Because if we do meet them where they're at right now, as hard as it is to kind of acknowledge and see sometimes and focus on what she is doing. So for example, like vocally stimming, if you acknowledge those things and, you know, kind of think about it as communication, like, what is she trying to tell you? Does she, Mm -hmm. you know, stim to show you that she's, you know, comfortable? Is it to wake her body up because she's tired? Is she excited? Um, If you're noticing what she is doing, I think that, you know, helps her um, understand that you hear her and Mm -hmm. you're validating, you know, yeah, a piece of her world. And, mm-hmm. um, that'll make her feel, yeah, ultimately heard and encourage her to continue to communicate with you. So I think as hard as it is to just kind of acknowledge and meet her where she is at. Um, and then, yeah, think of other ways, you know, she might be able to communicate those things. So maybe she lost those words, um, you know, within her speech, but could those 20 words 
you know, could you provide her with another way to communicate it? Mm, Can you show her visuals? Can you, you know, does she do well with objects, you know, get her like favorite objects for her to, you know, point or grab, um, you know, a picture of those things. Can you teach her the signs for those things? Just kind of thinking about like alternative ways that she uh, perhaps could say those things. So I think, yeah, the biggest thing you can always do is kind of look at, yeah, what they're doing right now, um, their strengths, and then that's when we can kind of go from there. Mm -hmm. So is there really any way to sort of stop the regression? Like, is there a way to know that this is where it is at, or do you just sort of kind of still like waited out, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better word, because I mean, you don't want it, them to keep regressing, but it, I, I'm assuming it gets a little bit of a slippery slope because you start seeing them losing things. And then like, is it just keep going? Like, is there a way to sort of stop it from the, for the regression, keep going? Mm-hmm. I think there is a way to kind of like, um, maintain or like compensate sometimes so mm-hmm. um for example the um the individual student who lost the way to like gesture yes and no mm-hmm. um what we ended up doing was we provided him with um yeah a communication board with yes and no we modeled lots of those things we had tons of songs you know with modeling no modeling yes um and teaching him that as a way to communicate to other people and then teaching, you know, the other supporters in his life, like the EAs, the teachers, you know, mm-hmm. when you present it with a question, make sure you have a visual for him because that's how he best communicates that. So I think um, there are ways that we can, yeah, compensate for those times mm-hmm. um, and, and teach our students, yeah, alternatives as, um, yeah, as they are kind of going through those like ups and downs in their right. development. Yeah. Does that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Cause I mean, I think you probably don't really notice it right away. The regression, it, like it's probably after a period of time you're going, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard those words or they've stopped doing this in a while. And, um, yeah, so you, I, you wouldn't necessarily notice it right away. So, and cause you might not even have the diagnosis yet. Cause I know yeah. I read about one woman, think she said her daughter was two and a half and was she was playing with her little play kitchen she goes that was the last time I ever saw her do that but I don't think she was diagnosed till like years later right you know and because you think back going yeah she doesn't do that anymore or and stuff like that I know that when Ainsley was getting her assessment they kept asking me I go I haven't seen any regression you know I mean one of the questions that they did ask me a lot was does she ever take your hand to try to like to get you to do something, but it's only been really in the last year that she's done that. She never did that before. Okay. Like she'll get, she'll take my hand to like, to unlock her iPad, for example, is generally yes. what it's for. But I, cause, cause I was kind of interested in the questions that they kept asking me. I go like, she's not showing any of those questions or she's not showing any of those behaviors. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I know you've touched a little bit on it. You know, there's obviously, lots of different ways for our kids to communicate and i i mean i in all these different forums and i remember reading about this one mom not it wasn't like a dual diagnosis forum but she didn't want to use sign language because she thought that would prevent Mm. like the child from like speaking but everyone's going no no because that's the way 
you're allowing them to communicate, which I think we have to remember, like, yes, they might've lost their language, but we still need to give them a voice in another way. And like, for me, as I talked about earlier, I'm having a really challenging time to figure out how to use like her chat chat at home. Like, do you have any suggestions for me and the other parents out there (laughs) on how we can use this device consistently? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And you're not alone because it's like learning another language. Like even when another student comes to me with a a new system, I'm like, okay, I have to learn this um, because I need to teach you how to use it. So it is, I totally empathize with the learning curve and um, getting it into your routine. Um, And I think for parents, especially because they know their child best, Mm. um, you're like, I know what she wants. I know what she's communicating. Um, but the, what I always kind of say to parents is because you know them best, you can show them, you can be that person to interpret what she's trying to say, to okay. teach them, to communicate with people who are not familiar with her or unfamiliar and might, yeah, uh, not know, you know, the, the subtle things. Um, I had a student, for example, who would always lick his lips when he wanted a drink, um, <laughs> And, you know, mom's in the session with me and she's like, oh, you want your water? And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what you wanted. And so, you know, having it's so valuable for, for us, you know, even to have yeah parents in on our sessions and that partnership is yeah invaluable. So um, having someone that can interpret those little things that we might not pick up on Um you know, it's huge. So we, yeah, mom started modeling, you know, water, and then he could communicate. He eventually learned, you know, to tell his supporters, yeah, when he wanted a drink. So mm. little things like that, I think, um, yeah, is is a valuable thing for parents to be on board and using it at home. But I know it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you find is like the most, like the biggest challenge around it? Like, is there anything in particular that you've noticed? That's the most, the biggest challenge. I think part of the problem is years ago, we started using the system Gemini. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. And it was before, I'm pretty sure it was, it might've been right around the time that she got her diagnosis or right before, I can't remember. But they say you should do it 20 minutes a day and do it at mealtimes. So now she has her iPad at every mealtime, but she's watching like every single birthday YouTube video <laughs> in all these different languages, right? <laughs> so, and it, so that's what it's become. And I'm going mm-hmm. like, do I not let her do that at dinner or breakfast or whatever? Like it's, I don't, I'm not crazy about it that she, that's what she's doing at the mealtime, but it's, that's just kind of been our life. But then I'm thinking, well, maybe when she's getting ready for bed, I should be saying, okay, let's go brush our teeth. Like she understands pretty much everything I say to her. So she knows, but like, and she knows the words, but she hasn't been putting them into sentences yet. Like go brush teeth. Like she hasn't, she hasn't said that yet, but she knows like to brush teeth. Like she knows that. So I guess it's like, when do I use it? Um, yeah, I guess that's really yeah. the big question is like, when should I be using it? Should I be like, let her watch her YouTube at dinner, but doing it like after dinner when like we're getting ready for bed or in the morning, get when we're up, okay, time to get up. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good question. Um, 
what I would kind of think about or consider is like what Ainsley is most motivated to communicate or um, what she is most interested in. So it sounds like, yeah, like unlocking the iPad might be something, you know, to like model what she wants ah, okay. or that kind of thing. Cause that's where ultimately her AAC device is to help her communicate mm-hmm. on her own accord um, her, yeah, like needs, her thoughts around things and those kind of things. So thinking about the context where, you know, communication is challenging for her. She's trying to get something across for me. How can I teach her to say this? Um, okay. And using it maybe yeah. around those. Yeah. Okay. That um, makes sense. because then that way too, like she'll be more interested in you modeling, you know, how to do it. And, um, okay. Yeah, when you're modeling, um, eventually she might, you know, like try to put those words together or um, copy you or that kind of thing. So she's, yeah, picking those those moments where she's, um, yeah, super motivated to communicate. So if that's around shows or requesting, you know, if she has, uh, so one of my students has like um, Fridays or their like takeout night mm-hmm. and he gets to pick, you know, where they go. So like they worked on, you know, uh, navigating to the the restaurant page um, and communicating that. So that kind of thing, like I think okay. just really motivating things um, and asking yourself, okay, what is Ainsley trying to communicate to me and how can I model that back so she learns an alternative way to say that to someone that might not know what she's asking right now, um, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah, because um, uh, like, I kept saying, I want iPad open, please, but usually mm-hmm. she just brings it to me and then she sometimes will, like I said, take my hand cause she wants me to unlock it. I mean, she knows the numbers. She could just do it herself, but I don't know why she hasn't tried it. Maybe she has, and she just ends up locking it. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but mm-hmm. okay. But that makes sense. Like I, now I kind of understand that better on different ways. I can use that to teach her how to ask for things, not just what I want to communicate to her. Yeah. how she can use it to get what yeah. she wants. That's a yeah. good way to, to okay. frame it. Yeah. 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 So that's good. Now, like, what can you advise to parents about getting a proper evaluation and choosing what AAC, which is assist, I can't remember what it stands for. Yeah. Alternative and augmentative communication. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's a <laughs> mouthful. <laughs> yeah. AAC is way easier. Like, how? Like, how can they? Who? Who should they? Parents talk to to find which one is the best for them. I'm assuming yeah. a speech pathologist, but yeah, you know. definitely. Um, so even though there's yeah no prerequisite requisite skills um, to start AAC, uh, whatever, yeah, that system means. There are certain, you know, characteristics or things that we need to assess uh, about the learner in order to take into consideration when choosing the right system. Mm -hmm. So you are, you know, right in assuming to, yeah, go to an SLP um, because not one size fits all. That's why everyone does have a different system. Um, I know sometimes parents, um, who mean, yeah, 
well purchase an app because they've read about it or their friend has it and those kind of things. Um, but I would advise parents to yeah consult with your SLP um, who have the knowledge about the different communication systems, um, taking into account you know several factors of the learner that will determine the success of their system. Because if not, if it's not at the you know right language level, if they have mm. difficulty you know, accessing the buttons, you know, meaning that they can't select them. Um, if they have, you know, vision issues, those kind of things, it might result in them abandoning their device, device mm. or, you know, not wanting to use it. So, okay. um, yeah, I would definitely speak with your SLP who will provide a AAC assessment. Um, they should present options to families uh, with their recommendations um, and hopefully a trial too. I always like to, to show families um, a lot of the apps. You can get like a free trial for 30 days before purchasing, which is really nice. Um, but of course, like different SLPs have different experience around their comfortability with AAC. So if you're unsure or your SLP doesn't have, um, feel comfortable, um, there's always a referral to Sunny Hills Assistive Technology Team uh, that provide AAC assessments for families. So I do also recommend that if, um, yeah, families are searching or don't have an SLP, they can make a referral um, to there as well. So for those like, because we have listeners from all over the world. So Sunny Hill mm. is, is our major autism assessment center, I guess, for BC, I'm guessing. Mm. So I guess you could go to your autism center, I guess. There should be some sort of, yeah, like I'm originally practiced in Ontario. So I'm just thinking about like some sort of uh, child development center or okay. uh, model around, yeah, some sort of assistive technology um, that, yeah, will provide these assessments. Usually okay. there's something, yeah, in every area, or at least there should be. <laughs> yeah, you hope, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just so thankful that we have the DSRF. Like another friend just commented, she was asking, oh, what's the DSRF? And I, I told her and she go, and I said, and it's only five minutes away. She goes, oh, oh, you're so lucky, right? Like, because most people don't have that. Or I mean, in the yeah. States, they have these, what they call Down syndrome clinics, but you only go once a year. Yes. And then you're, you're going everywhere for your different therapies and things like that. So I'm really glad that we have, you guys are so close and so fantastic. So, you know, and I know we've talked a lot about it, but like, I just, think for many of us who have kids with a dual diagnosis, like you said, what was it? 30 to 50% of people just with autism don't have speech, like actual yeah. verbal communication. So it can often be elusive or really challenging in our kids with a dual diagnosis. But, you know, as we've been chatting, you know, I think we just, you have to think outside the box a little bit. Like, yes, we all want our kids to actually speak, like actually talk but that may not always happen. But the key is to communicate, whether it's through their device, through sign language, through PACs, or, you know, communication it can take on so many forms. Like there's lots of people with autism who can't speak, like there's just the diagnosis of autism, but they can communicate well with other devices. Like I mm. just saw a woman who, I think she graduated I can't remember if it was university or high school, but she was not completely nonverbal. Like she could not, she had no speaking ability, but she wrote that she wrote their valedictorian speech. Amazing. And I guess it was like a, 
an assistive device that actually spoke it for her, but which was amazing. You know, here, mm -hmm. like she said, I cannot speak, but she still had a voice. Yeah. You know, and I think we have to remember that for our kids that I know that it's hard, but they, you know, they still, you have, they, you just have to find that voice for them, that way that yeah. they can communicate. So are there any other tips or things you would like to share to help our kids with their communication? Or do you think we've kind of sort of touched on everything or? Yeah, I think I love like kind of how you summarize that. Um, because even though, you know, when you come to speech therapy, the ultimate goal is good communication, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, whether that is with your speech or whether that's with the device or yeah, signs, whatever that means for that learner. So I think, yeah, we just want to validate like all forms of communication, however someone chooses to communicate um, and share their ideas. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the biggest message, like I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of like acknowledging how they choose to communicate. Um, it'll lead to, you know, less frustration mm -hmm. <laughs> and them trusting us, right? Because they're, you're, you're taking the time to, to meet them where, yeah, they're at and what they want to say to you, um, which is just so meaningful. Um, so yeah, I think um, that's the biggest kind of takeaway is, is yeah, communication is, is ultimately the goal at the end of the day, whatever that looks like for someone. Yes, that's awesome. So if people have other questions or concerns, I guess, for lack of a better word, is it okay for people to contact you and where can they find you? Yeah, you bet. Um, so email is probably best. Okay. <laughs> um, so my email is uh, live at dsrf.org. Okay. Um, I'd also encourage them to visit our website. Um, and it has like a great, you know, lots and lots of free resources. Mm -hmm. uh, families, um, yeah, can access it at home. Um, there's activities on there. There's videos about a lot of these things and information that we shared, um, especially with, we have a whole page on autism and Down syndrome. So um, yeah, I would encourage people to check that out as well. That's wonderful. Liv, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been really enlightening and I hope people find it really informative. I'm sure they will. And uh, yeah, like communication is, is the goal. I think it might not actually be verbal speech, but communication. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mary. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. You can drop me a line at our email at info at t21mom.com, or you can find me on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at trisomy21mama. Tell me your stories, what's going on in your life, what's important to you. Keep on loving on your rock and kiddos, and we will see you next time.